I think that they're about to outnumber us, guys. <laughs> they are getting close. They are getting close to outnumbering us. You know, funny story. Funny story. Um, so on the way over here, I was. I just looked at my wife and I said, "Do you know what I hate? Just in a natural perspective, what I hate almost more than anything else." And she just looked at me because she's expecting some big theological thing. And I said, I really hate when you have shoes that you have to tie. And you put your sock on and you put your shoe on and you tie it and you double knot it because it's got long laces and it always comes untied. And then the bottom of your foot starts to itch and you can't get it from either side. you got to take your shoe off and do that whole process. I hate... The reason I'm telling you that is not because that's some profound statement, but I was sitting here and that came to my mind. And as I was listening to everybody sing, I was just thinking... You know one thing that I love more than anything else? Musical talent aside, because let's face it, not all of us are musically talented. We're not the next Frank Sinatra or, or anything like that coming up. Or Loretta Lynn, Pat, I don't think that you're going to take her place in history. <laughs> I'm just picking on I'm picking on you. But no, I love when we're in church and the instruments aren't overpowering or anything like that and it's subtle and you can just hear everybody singing together and it's almost in that harmony, that unison and it's just worshiping God for who He is. That is one of my absolute favorite things and this morning I was able to hear the girls over here singing and hearing some people, you know, probably missing keys back here but I'm tone deaf so I couldn't tell you whether they were or not. But just everybody singing together in unison and I just thought, that's beautiful. And then as I was thinking about that, I started thinking about this book that I've been reading, and it's by Charles Finney. I don't know if you guys know who that is or not. But he talks about the things that precede a revival. And he talks about the things, he said, these are indications across the board. There may be other things other than this list, but he said there are things that happen every time before a revival breaks out. And he's not talking about a revival in a church. He's talking about a community-wide revival. He literally seen cities uh, turned upside down, hundreds of thousands of people come to the Lord. And he said, every time I experienced this, there were certain factors that always came first. And one of them is when people have a genuine desire to worship the Lord. One of them is when people have a genuine desire to learn and to mature in Christ. And another one is when people start reaching out to those in their immediate circle. And the thing I've been telling faith over and over and over again that has blessed my heart is that you guys are going out and it's not like you're going out and you're hitting the streets or anything like that. If you are, kudos. But it's you're, the people that you come into contact with on a consistent basis. Your neighbors, your daughters, your sons, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your immediate vicinity people that you work with. We have watched people start coming to this church simply because a member of this church has just reached out to somebody that's in their immediate vicinity and just told them about Jesus, just told them about things that are happening here, just told them about the love of God, and we've seen people start coming to this church. And I keep saying this, but we started out with like 15, and we're growing, and it's you guys doing it. It's not because I'm awesome, even though, you know, I'm just kidding. But it's you guys. And it's God moving in you, and it's an adequate, adamant desire to see God. And that's awesome. So I commend you guys for that. Um, that was free. That's not part of the message at all. Today we're going to have to do a little bit of teaching. Um, we've got a child dedication and a baptism service. And it's perfect that they're together. And here's why. Because a lot of people don't know that 
we'll get into the correlation in a minute. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 today, but we're going to do a little bit of background information first. So we understand that the covenant that we have with Christ is a new covenant, meaning that there was an old covenant. In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 8, which you don't have to turn there, I'll go there for you. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, it says, In speaking of a new covenant, meaning the covenant that we have in Christ, He makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Meaning that the new covenant is stepping in to take the place of the old. And I'm not a replacement theologist, if you guys know what that is. Don't accuse me of being one. The the new covenant doesn't replace the old. The new covenant fulfills the old. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law and step in. And because He fulfilled the law, in Him we have a new and a better covenant. The fulfillment of the old covenant. No longer are we under laws and traditions that we have to meet every jot and every tittle. And every time that we transgress or every time that we fall short of the law, we have to go and offer a sacrifice. Otherwise, we're out of right standing with God. We're not in that position anymore. Now, every time that we sin or we fall short, we have an advocate with the Father, namely Jesus Christ. We're in a new and better covenant. There's a hope, there's a solidity to the covenant, there's an assurance to this covenant that we in Christ will not fall out of this covenant. Yes, there is the option of leaving this covenant and going apostate, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the assurance and the hope and the peace that is in this covenant. We're talking about the fact that this is something better. Hebrews 7 says this is a new and better covenant. And we all know what the word better means, right? It means something more than or something that is gooder for (laughs) a hick term. Something that is much deeper, much sweeter, much more precious than the covenant that was before it. So in Christ we have a new and a better covenant. And to understand baptism... And while we're doing child dedication and baptism together, we need to understand a little bit about the Old Covenant. So the Old Covenant was established with Moses on the law and getting the Ten Commandments. We understand that. But even before that, there was a man named Abraham. He was actually named Abram. And he lived in the land of Ur of the Chaldees, if you want to know all that information. And God spoke to him and said, I want you to get up. I want you to take your family. I want you to go to the land that I will show you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I'll give it to you and to your seed forever. So Abraham obeys. And when God goes to establish this covenant with Abraham, He gives a sign of circumcision, which is an outward sign in the flesh, to show that they were members of this covenant. Now, a lot of people will teach and will preach that the reason that you baptize babies is because in the old covenant they circumcised a baby when they were eight days older, showing the sign of being a member of the covenant when they were eight days old, right? Well, in the New Covenant, baptism is our sign. Not circumcision. Paul says that circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but a new creature in Christ Jesus. So what we're looking at here is why does the dynamic change? Why don't we as Protestants baptize babies? And the reason is this. In the Old Covenant, it was a covenant that you were born into. It was a covenant that was of ethnicity. It was a cultural covenant. You were born a Jew, therefore you were circumcised, and you were in the Old Covenant because of your birthright. Now, there were ways for an outsider to become a proselyte and then get circumcised as an adult and become a member of the covenant. But that was the exception. The majority of those that were in the Old Covenant were actually born into that covenant. With Jesus, it's not a covenant that you're born into. It's a covenant that you're reborn into. 
if that makes sense. You have to believe. That's why we call it the believer's baptism. It's not something that you get baptized into as a baby and then no matter what you do the rest of your life that you're inside that covenant. See, a Jew, when they were circumcised, they grew up. It didn't matter if they lived like a heathen or if they lived perfectly righteous. They were still recognized as a Jew. Now, they may not have been recognized as a Jew that kept the law, but they were still recognized as being part of that old covenant. In Christ, it's not so. If you're baptized into Christ and your actions follow suit, then you're recognized as a Christian. But just because you're baptized, if you have any kind of actions whatsoever, that doesn't mean that you're automatically still a Christian because you were baptized once. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward circumcision, if that makes sense. In the Old Covenant, it was a covenant of the flesh. The New Covenant is a covenant of the Spirit. Therefore, what happens when we baptize somebody is that they're making a public declaration of an inward change. They're showing that they have been dead, buried, and raised with Christ and that they are in fact a new creature. The old man is dead and put to death and buried and a new man or a new woman is raised with Christ in Christ Jesus. That's the premise behind baptism. And yes, it is the sign of our covenant. It is the sign of our faith. But it is not something that we do to infants because infants do not have that mental understanding of belief. They don't have the ability to choose whether they believe or not. They don't have the ability to understand that what Christianity is. So we wait for an individual to come of age, to have the mental maturity to make that decision, and then we baptize them. However, we do something with infants. It's called consecration or dedication. And that's why we're doing these services together because to understand dedicating a child and to understand why we moved away from circumcision being the sign of the covenant and why we moved into baptizing and understanding why we don't baptize infants, it's good that we just package this all together so we can cover all the bases in one teaching message. So we do not think of circumcision, whether a child is circumcised or not, as being a sign of the covenant. We think of baptism as being the sign of the covenant when they come to the mental maturity to make that decision to show that they're a believer and to choose Christ. However, why do we dedicate children? And that's where we want to go to. We're going to go two places. We're going to go to 1 Samuel 1, and we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm beginning in verse 1. We're going to do a little bit of reading here. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, probably didn't pronounce that right, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. Say that five times fast. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival... Peninnah used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. 
And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant... But will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate. Her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked him from the Lord. All right. Real quick, jump over to Jeremiah. In just one verse, Jeremiah 1, five. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So understand this. When we dedicate a child, when we consecrate a child, when we pray over them and anoint them and dedicate them to the Lord, we are not actually giving them to the Lord. The reason is they are already His. The earth is His and the fullness thereof. Everything that draws breath on this Lord, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills. He owns the people. He owns the grass. He owns the trees, the forest, the whole nine. Everything that is on this planet belongs to the Lord. And He can do with it what He pleases because He is the sovereign creator of the universe. However, when we dedicate the child to the Lord, we are saying, this is yours. And the commitment that we're actually making is on our part. See, when parents come and they dedicate a child to the Lord, what they're actually doing is they're committing themselves to the Lord, saying, I will give this child to you, meaning I will bring this child up, meaning I will do the things necessary to make sure that this child pursues you all the days of their life, meaning I will pray over them, meaning I will teach them the Bible. I will know the Word of God, so therefore I can teach them the Word of God. I will know how to pray, therefore I can teach them how to pray. I will know how to worship, therefore I can teach them how to worship. But it's not just a commitment on the part of the parents, it's also a commitment on the part of the family. Because it takes a village, you've heard that saying, the whole family, everyone that's in that child's sphere of influence, sometimes there's things that our children learn from the grandparents that they won't receive from us. So as grandparents, you have to step in and show them the things of God. So you're making a commitment as their grandparents showing that you will raise them up in the way that they should go every time you're in their vicinity. It's a commitment on the friends. It's a commitment on behalf of the church congregation that every time that child comes in your sphere, that they don't walk across the fellowship hall when they're running and playing and hear you dropping F-bombs all over the place because that's not godly. They don't run across and hear you talking about when you got hammered a few days ago or when you got high or any of this stuff because you're living a godly life so that you can be a godly example for the children that come into your sphere of influence. It's a commitment on the part of the pastor. It's a commitment on part of the first lady. It's a commitment on the part of the Sunday school teachers and the children's church teachers and the nursery. It's a commitment all the way around saying that everyone that's in this child's sphere of influence is going to do everything in their power to make sure that this child grows up to be a godly man or woman. 
That's what we do when we dedicate a child. It's an all-around commitment saying, I vow to the Lord. Remember what Hannah said? She said, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. Notice what follows. All the days of his life. Not I will give him to you on Sunday. I will give him to you on Wednesday. Not I will give her to you on Sunday. Or I'll give her to you on Wednesday. Or I'll give her to you when I'm scrolling through 15 miles of Facebook and run across the one devotion that plagues my Facebook page. And I'll read that and then I'll share that with my kid. No, every single day will be an avid commitment to train that child up in the way that they should go. So that as we have the promise from Proverbs, when they're old they won't depart from it. Now I know... Because I grew up in a split family. Faith grew up in a split family. I had a dad that for the majority of his life was a heathen, ungodly. He's going to listen to this and be upset with me, but that's okay. He will admit that he was a heathen for a long period of time. My mom wasn't with God. There's sometimes there's things that you can't control. For example, if you're a split parent, or if your parents, the kid's grandparents, aren't godly, or if your neighbors aren't godly, Or if you can't get them to church every week because you have things that require your attention so that you can survive. The commitment is still the same on your part. You cannot leave it to the doing of the Sunday school teacher or the children's church teacher. The commitment remains the same. You have to step in because the Sunday school teacher or the children's church teacher has them for an hour, maybe two, once a week. And the other 24 hours, seven days a week, You have them. A Sunday school children's church teacher isn't going to be able to accomplish any good in those hour to two hours if every other day of the week they're experiencing hell. If every other day of the week they're not having any godly influence on their life. Psychological fact. Children make a conscious decision by the age of 13 whether or not they'll believe in God. And most individuals are solid on what they think about God by the age of 18. And most, this is science statistics proving most of the time after that they won't change one way or the other. There are exceptions. So you've got until the age of 13 to ensure that they believe in God. To ensure that they've seen enough God in your life. We say that all the time about being Christians, that sometimes the people out in the world, the only Bible that they'll ever read is your life. The only Christ they'll ever see is you. The only bit of heaven they'll ever see is you. Those are all evangelism things that we say as an encouragement to live holy lives. But the same can be said true of your children, that the only God that they'll see is the God that's in your life. So if 99% of the time... You don't walk like you know God, but then five minutes before you walk into church on a Sunday morning, you suddenly become the epitome of Christendom or the epitome of a Christian. And then you're that way until five minutes after you leave Sunday. That's a problem because the child will see that and will register that this is a facade and that they'll think all Christianity is a facade. That's left up to us. We make a commitment as parents God has given us a gift from the Lord. Now, some of you have already had children that have grown and you may have done exceptionally well or you may feel like you did terrible. That's not the point. The point is starting today in your children's lives as they're adults, you can still be a godly influence to them. Starting today in your children's grandchildren's lives, you can be a godly influence for your grandchildren. Even if their parents are heathen, you can still be a godly influence. You can be a godly influence in your friends' children's lives. Even if your friends aren't living where they should be. 
You can be a godly influence in the children that come to this church that are running around all Sunday morning that brings so much joy to my heart. It's one of my favorite things on Sunday morning to see kids running around and knowing that we have child-proofed this church so that they're not going to get hurt and they can just run and play throughout the entire church. And they don't feel constrained. They don't feel neglected. They get to run and play. And I see all these adults just spending time with the children and giving them donuts. And parents love you for that. (laughs) But you have the ability as a member of this church. Yeah, we're dedicating babies. We're dedicating little Brucie and Ava. And we're going to dedicate Spencer. But... The commitment is not just on the parents. They're bringing their children forth saying, hey, we want these children to grow up to be Christians. We want these children to be raised up in a godly household. We're making this commitment. But as a church, it is your moral obligation. It is your Christian duty to be a godly influence in the children that come in your sphere of influence. It's really your Christian duty to be a godly influence on anyone that comes in your sphere of influence. However, we're making that so much more adamant this morning because we're talking about children. It is our duty, our obligation to be a godly influence on these children. For when they look at you, they can see Jesus. And it's not a command to be perfect. You're going to slip up. Parents are going to mess up. Trust me. I know. I've got a two-year-old and a three-year-old. And they can be terrors. (laughs) And if you're not laughing, it's because you've either forgotten or you're trying to keep your composure together. Everyone that's had kids knows that children can be terrors. We love them. They're cute, but they're annoying. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) They can be. They They can definitely be annoying. Yeah, they, yes, they can. I love you. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> the problem is, is that sometimes, and I'm guilty of this too, we get so caught up in what we're doing. We get so caught up in what we think is the actual work. For example, and I'll use myself, I don't want to pull anybody else out. I'm a minister of the gospel, right? Faith is a minister of the gospel. Sometimes we can get so caught up and studying for a Sunday message or studying, reading, doing book reports, things that I'm having to do for my ordination process. We can get so caught up in what we have to do, thinking that that is the ministry. And as a byproduct, we neglect the greatest ministry. See, I will never have as much influence in any of your lives as I will in Asher and Claire's life. That's just a fact of life. Like, you're going to regard me as your pastor. You may submit to the, the church authority. You may receive from my teaching. It may help. You may change your life. You may grow closer to God. All of that is awesome. But I literally have the ability to shape a young man and a young woman into mature men, a mature man and mature woman in Christ. I literally have the opportunity to shape and mold who they become by my actions, by my words, by my responses, by my conduct, by my character, the things that I do, they're going to become what I am, not what I teach them to be. That whole practice what you preach, a child is going to mimic who you are, not what you say you are. And so as men and women of God, as men and women in Christ, we have to be what we say we are. It goes back to that statement that I keep pushing Act like a Christian, aim for authenticity, aim for an authentic Christian walk because the fake may catch us all unaware. We may think that you're 
a perfect, solid Christian walking in here and that you have it all together. But the fake does not catch God off guard because he sees what goes on when no one else is looking. And the fake doesn't catch your kids off guard because they see you when no one else does. Just because you close the door and think that you're acting like something else and nobody knows about it, your kids know. When I'm reading or studying and my son comes over and says, Papa, 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 and goes beyond the speed of sound somehow, and I snap at him because I didn't answer him in the first place. I'm guilty of it. I've snapped at him like, What? He sees that and that logs away. And then maybe he does that so many times. And I'm not saying that every time he does that, I snap at him. I'm not like a horrible dad. But maybe I do that just one too many times. And then when he's finally old enough and he comes and he's saying, Papa, 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 to ask me about whether or not God exists. And I snap. And so he just withholds his question and goes on. Then maybe I am pushing him in the direction that I say I don't want him to go. Does that make sense? Maybe sometime when a kid comes up and you're in the middle of something and you can't stop what you're doing to, to minister or to help that young child, maybe the one thing they ask is, Mom and Dad don't, don't believe in God, but I come to church and I believe. Am I wrong or are they wrong? Like, and I'm not saying that you should just get your get kids to become enemies of their parents just because their parents don't believe and they come here or anything like that. What I am saying is regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation, we have to love these children. Jesus said time and time again, suffer the little children to come unto me. Suffer the little children for theirs is the kingdom of God. He even goes so far to say if you don't receive the kingdom like a child, then you're not getting in. So we have to suffer the children, right? Amen? Alright, so what we're going to do is I'm going to look at six things real quick that we're making a commitment. As parents, as grandparents, as aunts, as uncles, friends, as fellow church members, as a congregation, we're going to make these commitments together. And if you don't want to make them, then something's wrong with you. <laughs> but we're going to make this commitment that we're going to be this kind of influence in the ch children's lives. And the points are simple. The first one is be holy. And I don't mean be perfect because there's only one that's ever been perfect. I mean strive for perfection. I use this analogy all the time. If you ask yourself the question, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? And hopefully a debate don't break out. Uh, my favorite player is Kobe, but he's not the best. Michael Jordan is the best player of all time. But in, throughout his career, I am unaware, and I don't think it ever occurred, of him ever going into a basketball game and making every single shot that he threw up. He came close. I think he had like 80% accuracy in one game, maybe 90%. But I don't think that he ever played a game where he made 100% of the shots that he took. I don't think he ever did. But I don't think that he ever, in fact, I know that he didn't, he never walked into a basketball game and intentionally tried to miss every shot that he took. He always strived to make it. He always strived for perfection. Regardless if he achieved it or not, even going into the game, he knew he wasn't going to make every shot. Everyone knows going into a basketball game, if you've ever played any at all, you're not going to be perfect. Sometimes you're lucky if you get 50%, but you're striving to make the shot that you take. Every shot that you take, you're striving to make. 
The point is, is you're not going to be Jesus in the flesh. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to sin. You're going to fall short. It's going to happen. You've got the sinful flesh. You've got the world, the flesh, and the devil all waging war against you. Sometimes you have your friends and confidants waging against you, trying to get you to do things that you know you shouldn't do. Sometimes you have continual influences in the workplace trying to get you to things. The world, the flesh, and the devil, all these influences pushing you towards hell, and you're striving towards heaven. You're not going to be perfect. However, our goal is not to be perfect. Jesus took that place so that we didn't have to be that. He was perfect so that we could be perfect in Him. However, He does not give us the authorization to then go forth and be wicked. We have to strive for perfection. Regardless if we can achieve it, knowing that we'll fall short, we strive for that holiness. We strive for perfection. Yesterday I sinned. Today I'm going to try not to. Today I sinned. Tomorrow I'm going to try not to. I'm going to try to go as long as I can, as often as I can, without sinning and falling short of the glory of God because that's what I've been called to. And that's what your children are looking at. They're looking at your actions. That's what the children in this church are looking at. They're looking at our actions, not just our words. So the first commitment is be holy. Be like Jesus. Let God conform you to the image of Christ. The second point is know the Word. Read the Word. You don't have to be able to quote 66 books of the Bible. But memorize some Scripture. Know the gist of what it's saying. Know the overall message. Know the content. Because you can't teach children the Word of God if you don't know the Word of God. So learn the Word. Get in it. Read it. It's easy for you to read something and then turn around and convey what you just read. That's not hard. And there's children's versions that you can read with your children. Read the Word so that you can know the Word, so that you can teach the Word. And the third point, and this is the biggest one of all, love them unconditionally. Unconditionally. Regardless of what they do. Regardless if they are 18 years old, run away from the house, and are living like heathens, and hold on to the promise that God says you train them up in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. Love them unconditionally. I learned more about God's love in the first five seconds of Asher being born than I knew the whole time I was saved before then. And I say Asher because he was born first and he was my first child that I was actually able to hold. We lost our first child through medical... Anyway, we lost. I was able to hold Asher. And when I held him, I immediately realized that he hasn't done anything good or anything bad but I had a love for Him that I would right then give my life so that He could live. Right in that moment, if somebody asked me, He dies or you die, pick me every time. Pick me every time. Because there was something about that consuming, paternal, fatherly love that just overwhelmed me. And it was like, no matter what He does, He's going to have my love. He may not, I may not always be pleased with what He does, but I'm going to love Him. And He's always going to know, no matter what, that He has my love and my affection, regardless of the choices that He makes. In the first five seconds of Him being born, I immediately knew that. And it taught me about God's love because regardless of whether or not He's pleased with us, His love is for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Even when we're wicked, even when we're in sin, even when we're in enmity with God, His love is for us. That's why He has the opportunity. He made the way. He set the stage so that we could come to Him. He made the provision so that we could take and join in in the appropriation of that sacrifice. Substitution sacrifice. He died the death that we were supposed to die because of His love. Love your children unconditionally. And even if they're not yours, love them unconditionally. 
We're not called to hate. We're called to love. The fourth point. Show them how to be a Christian by being one yourself. And that's not just about being holy, even though it's included in that. It's about love those that hate you. Do good to those that persecute you. Pray for those that despitefully use you. It's about not just not sinning, but seeking God. Show them how to pray. Show them how to study. Show them how to handle themselves in bad situations. Encourage them to be a Christian by being one yourself. Not just in name only. Fifth point is pray for them. Every single day. And it doesn't have to be a long 500 minute prayer because that would be extremely time consuming. It can be a few minutes each day. Pray for them. Pray for your children. And sometimes pray specific. Don't just pray a general prayer like, Lord, help them, bless them, keep it. Pray specific like, God, I want my son to grow up and be in you. I want my son or my daughter to never depart from you. I don't want them to have this season of backsliding like I may or may not have had. I don't want them to go through hell and then the rest of their life look back over their shoulder at the sins that they committed and the devil trying to use that against them. I want them to never remember a time that they weren't in you. I want them for by the time they're 10 and 11 and they can start having that mental maturity to understand what Christianity is and whether or not they can, they, they're saved and whether or not they're in covenant with Christ, from that moment, those moments, I want them to pursue you the rest of their life. Like Pray specifically for them. And it don't have to be super elaborate, but it can be super specific. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We don't just need to be specific in our prayers, but we need to be passionate in our prayers. We need to strongly approach the throne of grace with boldness, holding on to that promise that, Lord, it says that if I train them up in the way that they should go when they're old, they won't depart from it. It says, your word says that if I live like this, me and my household will be saved. It says that, God. So that's what I want. Pray for your children. And everyone else who don't have young children or all your children are already grown and out of the house, continue to pray for them, but start praying for the other children in the church. For those young children that you see that come here consistently or may come once. If you don't catch their name, that's fine. But if you do catch their name, then start praying for them by name in your own prayer. And this isn't a, whoa, look at me, because I'm definitely not perfect. But one thing that I do have is I have a piece of paper, and it's in my prayer notebook. And it has every one of y'all's names on it. And every day that I pray, which is every day, <laughs> I open that list. And it may not be super specific. I may set on one or two of the names for a minute. But every single day, I pray over every single one of y'all's names. Because I feel like as a pastor, that's my obligation. But you, as a Christian, as a fellow believer, call people's names before God and say, God, whatever they're struggling with, and especially the children, because the devil wants the children. That's been a tactic of the enemy since day one to go after the children. I mean, you look at all of the major movements of wickedness throughout history. Look at Hitler with the Nazi youth and look at Stalin and the things that he did by sending youth into youth groups and destroying the youth group or causing division to get all the clothes, uh, the churches shut down in Russia and all of the things. Every movement of wickedness 
Machiavelli and his stuff and Mussolini and his stuff, it all says the same thing. Go after the children. Influence them. Raise them up. Create a generation of useful idiots so that they can do the will of the dictator. That's what they try to do. They try to do that in schools. They try to do that through like Boy Scouts and stuff. Like they've been doing that stuff since the beginning of time. They're going after the children. And it's your duty to protect your children by training them up the way that they should go. By influencing them from, for God. Because if you're not going to do it, who will? If we as a church aren't going to do it, who will? And the last thing, very, very simple. Take them to church. I'm not just saying that so that the church can grow because it doesn't have to be this church. There's many good churches. I'm a little bit privy to this church, but taking them to church where they can be with fellow Christian children because kids desire that unity. They desire that social interaction. Unless it's Claire, because I don't know. She just likes to be by herself. But... Children desire that unity. They love playing with other kids. It's hard as they start to get older in like elementary school, middle school, high school, if all their influences and all of their friends are not Christians, then the peer pressure can become almost overwhelming. But if you bring them to church at an early age and they get to grow up alongside these other children to Christian families, then they have peer pressure for the positive. And yeah, they're going to get into stuff because kids aren't perfect. But we're not trying to make them perfect because we know ourselves we're not perfect. We're trying to do everything that we can to set the stage so that when they are able to make that choice themselves, they choose God every time. Even if they slip up while they're doing it, even if they stumble and bumble and crawl and fall on their way to heaven, at least they're pursuing Christ and not running wide open towards hell. That's our duty. Now what I want to do, and Michael, if you want to go get Spencer, um, I don't know if you guys are going to bring him down to be prayed over, but Bruce and Ava, and if you want to go get Chelsea Faith, and that way she can bring Bruce in here. What we're going to do is twofold. They're going to bring the children in. Faith and I are going to lay, anoint our hands with oil. We're going to lay our hands on these children. We're going to pray over them. And we're going to bless them. <laughs> okay, okay, we will. Um, we're going to lay our hands on these children. We're going to bless them and pray over them. And then what I want everyone to do as we're praying over them, I don't want anyone having side conversations. We're, I'm wrapping it up a little bit early. I don't want anyone side talking or stepping out or anything like that. I want everyone to just take a solemn moment and just pray for these children. Not just the ones that are up here being consecrated, Although focus on them because we are dedicating them this morning and we're committing ourselves as family, as a Christian family, to pray for these children. But then just continue from this moment forward to pray over all the children that come to this church. To know that theirs is the kingdom of God. That we're going to live, get old, and die. And they're going to be the next generation. And if we don't continue to train up the children in the way that they should go, if we don't continue to raise up children that are godly, What's the church going to look like in 20, 30, 40, 50 years if the Lord should tarry? What's the church going to look like? Because they're going to be the ones that we hand the reins off to. So we have to understand what we're getting into, what we're setting the stage for, who we're handling the, handing the reins off to. Amen? Amen. Alright. So if you want to bring...